Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, it's Parshas Kisisa, and that's, uh, that's famous for uh, containing the whole incident of the, the sin of the golden calf, the Cheta Egel. And um, I was in, in Shul, I had actually overslept, and, and so I, I went to a later minion, but the, the nice part of that was that it was with my, my son at school, and he turned to me at sort of the end of Davini, and he said to me, he likes Gamatria. Uh, I wonder where he got that from. But he said to me, uh, do you know what word equals 731? Or, and I, what occurred to me at that moment is probably what's occurring to you at that moment, which is I, I have no idea. So I said, I, I don't know. And, and, and I, but I figured that it was probably the gematria of Kisisa, the, the, the name of the Parsha. So, um, so I said, well, I can check my, my gematria app uh, on my iPhone. By the way, uh, iGamatria, it's called. Um, and I recommend it. I think it's like $3 or something, and you can do all sorts of things on it. But, but anyway, so I, I look up, I plug in 731, and there aren't that many words for it. But one of the words, uh, very interestingly, was vihishtachavu. Now, vihishtachavu in Hebrew means to bow down. And so that seemed very interesting. And then they give the, the source for actually where it is in the Parsha. And it's in, it's in Shmos. Not only is it in Shmos, the book of Exodus, but it's in Kisisa. So, so that seems very interesting. So, so the, the gematria for Kisisa is this word which appears in that Parsha. And it's v'hishtachavu to bow down. And of course, Kisisa is, is famous because that's where we read about the sin of the golden calf. So if you're connecting the dots like I was connecting the dots at that moment, you probably think Fihishtachavu is referring to bowing down before the golden calf, which is, would be an amazing correlation. But it's actually, in, in, it's actually much better than that and, and much sweeter than that. Um, because Fihishtachavu isn't referring to bowing down before the golden calf. It's actually coming after the incident of the whole uh, golden calf, and it's referring to the, to the Jews bowing down before God, which is a fixing, really, for the golden calf. It's a recognition of, of Hashem being Hashem. So this is, this is actually very, very beautiful. And let me just tell you why I'm touched by this, okay? Because you, you see... In the beginning of Parsha's Devarim, right, right at the very beginning, um, Moshe Rabbeinu is recounting the different places that, that the Jews traveled to. And one of the places that he mentioned is Di Zahav, which is referring to Zahav, it means gold in Hebrew. So it's referring to this place of gold, right? But if you look at Rashi, the commentators say, no, 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 no. What, what, what Moshe was really doing was he was very sort of elliptically, very sensitively referring to mistakes that they made in their journeys. So he didn't want to say, you know, let me tell you how we got here and all the different fights and troubles that we've gone through in our relationship and everything like that. He didn't want to do that. But he did want to make reference to it. So he did it in a very sensitive way by referring to this place called Dietz Zahav. Okay, so, so you may have thought which is what I thought, that Kisisa, the name of the Parsha containing the sin of the golden calf, 
is the same gematria as Vishdachavu to bow down because Hashem was very sort of sensitively, just elliptically referring to this error that we made. But it's, it's the opposite of that. He's actually referring to the fixing, correlating the mistake in the Parsha with the fixing that needs to take place. And so there's an embrace that's actually taking there, place there. Hashem is referring to us or pointing us to that which we did right as opposed to that which we did wrong. So that's, that, that's very beautiful. That's very, very beautiful. By the way, there's a practical halacha that um, is associated with this, and um, I'd like to share it with you, just in case you don't know, which is, in terms of the laws of Lashon Hara, um, speaking properly, and um, that it, if, you, if you know that a certain phrase is going to um, remind someone of something that will be Lashon Hara, even though you're not saying the words, like, I'll give you, the, the way it was taught to me the very first time by a friend, he kind of gave a crazy example, but here's the, here's the example. If you, um, I don't know, let's say, say there's something going on with you and uh, someone named Mr. Spinacci, <laughs> right? I don't know, it's a crazy example, but you'll get the point here. And you're in like this big fight with him, whatever it is. And then you make reference to the person, you make reference to spinach. Knowing that it's in the air and the association is going to be made right away with this other person. And that that's then going to lead to maybe an inappropriate conversation about this other person. Don't say the word spinach because it's going to go right into this other conversation. I'll give you another version of that. Um, if you know that there's someone who's kind of a controversial figure, right? Let's say there's a rabbi in the community or, or, or someone who uh, people have very strong opinions about for different reasons, right? And let's say you, you say, uh, let's say you're at the Shabbos table or something like that and you say, you know, I heard a beautiful thing from this rabbi and you mentioned him by name. But you know that his, he's such a controversial figure that as soon as his name is mentioned, everyone's going to jump in and they're not going to discuss the point. They're just going to say how they feel about this person. Then, then you have essentially introduced or triggered this um, Lushan Hara Fest <laughs> feeding frenzy that's about to take place. You have provoked it. Uh, so, so one should be very careful about you know, you, you have to just think a couple of uh, moves in advance. And you have to ask yourself, where, where is the conversation that I'm initiating going, probably, most likely, going to lead to? Right? Um, it reminds me of, just because we're on the subject of things to say, things not to say, one more bit of, of, of Lushan Hara that, that people don't always... Uh, think of as Lashon Hara. And I remember when I first heard this, I had a lot of difficulty with this because it, it, it actually upset me because I thought, that's too many restrictions. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's just not fair that this should be wrong. But the more I've thought about it over the years, the more I see the wisdom of it. So allow yourselves to get angry and then allow yourselves to see the wisdom, <laughs> which is 
If you go up to, let's say there are two people standing together, could be men, could be women, it doesn't matter. But let's, you go up to two people, they're standing there, let's say it's at a party or something like that. And you really like the, let's say the dress or the tie, whatever it is that one person has on, you go, oh wow, that's such a beautiful dress or that's such a handsome tie. Now, that, that's also Lashon Hara. Why? Because the person who's sitting or standing next to them is thinking, what's wrong with my dress? <laughs> what's wrong with my tie? And so inadvertently, even though you didn't even have a shred of that intention, that was not your intention at all, you just wanted to share something nice with the person, right? Compliment the person. Nonetheless, pick the right circumstances. If the person is alone, then you, you can say it to the person. There's nothing wrong with complimenting a person, you know? Say, oh, I love that, or your hair looks nice, or whatever it is. You, you can say that to the person. But if they're in front of other people, other people are just going to be thinking that you've insulted them, even though you haven't, but that's how they'll experience it. And so, again, the, the, the extreme sensitivity of Torah the extreme sensitivity of Torah, taking into account other people's feelings in a, in a very advanced level, in a very super refined level. You know, I'll tell you something, I'll share something with you. I knew moments like this were going to happen, but, um, and I, I'm terrified of them, by the way, but I, but I saw one happen this week, so I'll share it with you just because, uh, you know, I guess that's what these talks are about. So, so you see, raising children, and, and all of us are children who have been raised, so we can all relate to this uh, on, on one side or the other, um, is, is, a, is a very strange process um, for, for, for many reasons. But one is that you put, your parents put so much love and care into you, um, and then you end up remembering really isolated little moments. And some of those moments that you remember about your parents, your parents would be horrified. That's what, that's what you remember. You know, I, I got up, I drove you to, I, I cooked, I went to, I, for, that's what you, that's what, really? That's what you remember? You know, and, and it's sort of like, this is an inevitable, this is inevitable, right? So, so the question is, what, like, like for me, what are my kids actually going to remember of me? Right? And I'll tell you, you know where, you know where I've really seen this in a, in a different way? This is sort of a thought that I've kind of been aware of for like a long time. Um, but one place where you see it, and again, I find this so heartbreaking, really. I find this really, really heartbreaking. Like, when people, like in shul, for instance, let's say there's a yurt site, right? It's the anniversary of, your, of a parent leaving the world, and um, someone wants to say some words about their parent, and they want to honor them, right? So here you have someone who lived, let's say, you know, 60, 70, 80 years. And... I, I, hear, I hear people do this all the time, and there's nothing wrong with it, by the way. I'm just talking about just the, just the situation. They'll say, oh, he was a very nice person. 
Uh, he smiled a lot. <laughs> you know, he always, he always, he always did this. And it's like you're summer. Really, you're summarizing eighty years in three sentences. Really. And that, I can only use the word heartbreaking about that, you know? To think that when all is said and done after decades and decades of really, you know, I had a, um, growing up in, in New York City, we, we had an elevator man. His name was Frank. I'm sure he's no longer in this world. He should rest in peace. And he was an Irish guy with a big sort of red veiny nose. <laughs> and... Um, and I was at this little kid, like, you know, walking off to uh, elementary school, PS 87, right? And I'd be there, you know, just going to school. And this old crusty guy would say the same thing to me every single morning. Off to the old salt mines. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Which I think even as a kid was probably a very dated reference to, you know, like, you know, child labor, like, you know, being a miner, you know? So, but that, that's what it was. Off to the old salt mines, you know? And, and so, you know, we labor for, what, 80 years in the salt mines. And it's sort of like, oh, you know, I remember one time he... And that's it. You get one anecdote, you know? It's like, can you imagine, like, like now we have Twitter, right? So what do you get? 100, what is it, 126 or whatever characters, right? Can you imagine? You have to tweet. Tweet your life, you know? So, getting back to this moment, the reason why I'm bringing this up. So I was putting my son uh, to bed. So he just, you know, he just turned 13. And uh, out of the blue, he says to me, you know, I've only attended one of your talks. Which already is completely wrong. He's been at many over the years. All right? 13. So he said to me, you know, just, he just blurted this out as I was, the lights were out, I'm walking out of the room, we said Shema together. He says, I've, you know, I've only attended one of your talks, and I only remember one thing from that talk. <laughs> right? And I was like, this is exactly what I'm talking about. It's happening right now. It's happening right now, you know? And, and, I, and, and he said, either I asked him what was it, or he, you know, volunteered it. And he said, you were talking about the halachas of uh, washing yourself in the shower. So let me just go over them again, just in case you, know, you don't know them. It's a, it's a good thing to know. So first you wash your hair. So it's the top of your head. So you shampoo first. Then you wash your face. Then you wash your heart. Okay. Then you wash your right hand, then your left hand, then your right foot, then your left foot. And then freestyle. You know, whatever you want. So again, it's your head, meaning your hair, your face, your heart. And by the way, there's a nice kavana you can have in mind. came to me one time. There's a very beautiful uh, thing that we say in the Shemona Esrei, V'taher libenu la'avdecha be'emes, where we really ask God to, V'taher libenu, to... To, to cleanse my heart so that I can serve you with truth. So while you're washing your heart, if you have in mind that, please God, cleanse my heart so I can serve you with truth, you know, that's a nice thing, um, but not necessary. Anyway, so 
Hair, face, heart, right hand, left hand, right foot, left foot, and then whatever you like. So, so he said to me, you know, so I remember one thing from the one talk I attended, which is, um, he said, I remember you were going over the halachas of washing yourself. And you said that when you hear this, you can react one of two ways. One, I can't believe I have to wash myself in a certain order, or there's actually an order to wash in. Or, thank you God that you mean there's even a way for me to wash myself in the shower. Like, it's fantastic, you know? Like, what a world. Even, I can even do that in a holy way. There's even a holy way for me to do that. Thank you, God. So, I was sharing this with a friend of mine. And he said, yeah, you know, and he, I don't know if he was trying to make me feel better or whatever it is, but he said, you know, if he's only going to remember one thing from you, In a way, that's pretty, and it's a pretty good thing because he realizes, you know, all of life, you know, you can look at it one way or you can look at it the other way. You know, people, see, one of the things that I, I, I always try to express, but I haven't said it in a long time, and it, it comes from this story that I liked very much, um, and I, I saw it attributed to the young Gare Rebbe, um, and, and it, went, it went like this, that an, an elder chassid or an elder rav, whoever he was, says to this young child genius, um, I'll give you a kopeck or whatever the currency was, I'll give you a kopeck if you can tell me where God is. And he says back, I'll give you two kopecks if you can tell me where God isn't. <laughs> right? So I always love that story. And, and I, I, one, one day I was trying to think, like, you know, the, the child got the better of the older rabbi. But the question is, why? Why is that so much deeper to say, I'll give you two kopecks if you can tell me where God isn't, as opposed to, I'll give you one if you can tell me where God is. Well, what was the answer that the elder rabbi was looking for? I'll give you a kopeck if you can tell me where God is. I guess that he wanted the boy to say God is everywhere. But you see, there's a problem with, with, with that approach, with saying that God is everywhere. And the, and the reason is because God is infinite and the mind is finite, which means that the finite mind can't absorb the infinity of God, which means that at a certain point, the mind maxes out. And then what happens is something which is a transition takes place, which is something that I think we all have to fight against in terms of our heavenly service. Because it, it's, it's very commonplace, and it's very disastrous. And what that is, is at a certain point, since the mind can't absorb the infinity of God, we turn God into a concept as opposed to a reality. Because the mind can file away a concept and then all of a sudden, God becomes symbolic of something as opposed to the tangible reality that you're interacting with constantly. If you say, I'll give you two kopecks if you can tell me where God isn't, instead of having to absorb the infinity of God, 
what you're doing is focusing on every single moment, every single thing, and saying that God is also here, God is also here. Or God isn't not here. (laughs) Depending if you want to make the actual words track. But, with that in mind, you can understand why there's so much halacha, why there's so much Jewish law. You see, a lot of people have this experience. And I guess the, the word experience is the key word here. Because one thing that I'm becoming in, increasingly, ever increasingly familiar with, or aware of, is the fact that you can't really convince anyone about God, really, or Torah, or any of these things. You can't, because it's not an intellectual debate. And it's the type of thing where if you debate someone and you win, it's what my dad would refer to all the time. He would say, You'll, you win the battle and you lose the war. You win the battle because you win the argument, right? But then they hate you for winning the argument. So what have you gained? What have you gained? These things a person has to accept on their own. They have to, and, and, and so... So, ironically, not trying to convince someone of something becomes the most convincing tact that you can take because you tell them, this is what works for me, this is what I understand, and then it allows them the space and the room for them to make the decision. You know what? That actually does make sense. I I was talking to someone recently about the, the fossil record and trying to jibe the fossil record with the Torah account of creation. They were having tremendous, tremendous difficulty with this. And by the way, there there are many answers. Um, If this this is something that bothers you, I'm not going to go through all of it right now. But you should be assured that there are many answers to account for these things. However, this was a real sticking point for him. And so I said to him, you know, I think that both of us are taking the same approach. Both of us are starting with what we understand to be most real, and we're extrapolating from there. So, so for him, the fossil record was most real. And now he wants to make everything fit with that. Okay, that's one approach. I'm taking a different approach. For me, and we, we've been talking about this, but just to go further with this idea. Let's say you take the Darwinian stance that everything starts with a single cell and then goes from there, right? So my question is, who made the single cell? And who made all of time and space for that cell to exist in? So I would say God. If you want to start with the origin of the universe, and by the way, Torah has been saying this forever, for thousands of years, that it started with a single point. But the Big Bang, let's just take it from the science perspective right now, the Big Bang says it starts with a single point, and it explodes out from there, the universe explodes out from there. So again, I would ask you, where did that single point come from? And where did the fabric of time and space come from for that to exist in? So again, to me, it's, it's clear that it's Hashem. You see, everywhere you look in the world, from the highest, the highest deepest parts of space to the subatomic level, what you see is architecture. It's all architecture, and it's the most rigorously exact architecture. So if you say, well, um, no, 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 it just got there on its own, and because it stopped there, 
it looks like architecture to you. But let me ask you something. How did it know to stop there? <laughs> like, if you want to say that it's just, no, it's just been evolving, 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 you know? So why did it stop at that perfect point? <laughs> Unless there was some divine intelligence telling it to stop there. Because it certainly didn't stop anywhere up to there. So all of a sudden, everything just stopped there on its own. So you have to posit something coming from nothingness into reality and then evolving to exactly the right moment randomly and then randomly stopping at the perfect moment every single time and staying stopped, more or less, at the perfect time, right? So to me, that that's actually makes no sense. That actually is illogical. It's illogical. Or that requires a tremendous act of faith. So if you believe that, so what's the difference between you and me? You're a believer and I'm a believer. So, so is, there, is there really any fundamental difference? But the point that I'm trying to make is this. Some people start with what they feel to be most real. And they say, okay, the, the, the fossil record is most real, as it's understood today. And I will extrapolate from there. And if anything doesn't jibe with that, then it can't be true. I'm starting from a different perspective, which is that the one who brought the universe and all of us and everything in it is most real. And I'm extrapolating from there. So if you're starting with the standpoint of an all-powerful God who loves us, right, then he also created every single thing in his creation. And if I don't know the answer, that's okay, because he for sure knows the answer. <laughs> and if I believe in another system, I'm still going to have questions that I can't answer. So in every version, I've got questions I can't answer. But I certainly have less questions that I can't answer, and there are less contradictions here, because I'm starting with the one who made everything and who knows everything. So, so I wanted to make, I was trying to come up with a simple analogy to somehow summarize all of that. And this is, this is what kind of came to me, which is imagine someone's throwing you a birthday party, right? Well, it's a massive birthday party, massive, like it's in Madison Square Garden, right? And there are banners hanging everywhere. Happy birthday, and just, it's just, everyone's there. They're with their party hats and the streamers and everything, balloons. A huge party, right? And you're throwing it. Let's say it's being thrown from me, okay? And now I say, where's the birthday cake? And they say, oh, there's no birthday cake. <laughs> oh. Well, if there's no birthday cake, then this can't be a birthday party. Because every birthday party has a birthday cake. You begin with the birthday cake. <laughs> And therefore, if there's no birthday cake, this cannot be a birthday party. So that, that doesn't make any sense to me. But that, that is an approach where you start with one thing and extrapolate from there. Where you start from the bottom and extrapolate toward the top. Right? You start with the bottom and go up to the top. I think to me, if, if God made everything, including you and me and all of us, why not start with God and go from there? Start with the top and go down to the bottom. That to me feels like a more intellectual approach actually. 
you know? So, anyway, that's, uh, that is, uh, <laughs> that's for that. So, so getting back, getting back to um, this whole idea of the 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 eagle, right? The sin of the golden calf. There's a, a question that's asked. I, I forgot by whom, but it's it's a great question. I think actually it's um, uh, the briskarav. I think, but the question goes like this, which is, you know, if you look, God commanded us to make two golden statues and put them on top of the Torah Ark in the Holy of Holies of angels, right? So this seems very, very strange. If you're talking about we made a golden calf and that was like, you know, one of the worst things we could have ever have done. Isn't it strange that there were two golden statues in the Holy of Holies sitting on top of the Torah? Right? Well, so what's the difference? Why was one a mitzvah and an, and, an, and an essential element of the base of Migdash, the dwelling place of Hashem, right? God dwells in the whole world, but that is the place He's calling His headquarters. And then this thing that we made, that was really a catastrophe, spiritually. So, so the answer is very simple. God asked us to make that. He didn't ask us to make this. <laughs> So this idea of, of the, top, the top down as opposed to the bottom up. In other words, how are we supposed to serve God? The way we choose or the way God asks? This is, this is what every single person is confronted with. And this is a large aspect of the human condition. Because... You know, what if I disagree with that? What if that doesn't make sense to me? You know? So it's, it's very, very hard. Especially as over time and throughout history, our um, civic institutions have empowered the individual to really exponentially. Right? Remember, the, the model really used to be the monarchy, where, which is very sort of like, in tune with the idea of one God, like there's, there's one above whose word rules, right? So just, just in terms of um, our socializing, we, we, we understand that that, that, that that model fits very nicely with, 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 with the notion of, of Torah mitzvot. But the more democratically sort of um, oriented society that we live in today says the, all of the power belongs to the people, which is a, a great form of government. But psychologically, it increasingly conditions us to say, I have the final word, and it's all up to me, and, and I decide ultimately what's right and wrong. So it's, it's very, very tricky. It's very, very tricky. You know, um, I'll tell you, there's a there was a great moment in the Olympics. I don't know if anyone's watching the Olympics, but um, the, there's a sport that the Americans are dominating, which is the snowboarding, the freestyle snowboarding, right? And they won. It's the first time they ever uh, slope style, it's called. And they go up these ramps, 
and they do flips and they spin around and sometimes they'll do multiple somersaults and then they land on their, on their sleds, on their feet, you know, on their snowboards or skis. And it's, it's a wonder to watch. It's a wonder to watch. And, um, and we won the gold medal in the, or America won the gold medal in, in, for the men's and the, and the women's, the first time it's been offered this year. And so the American guy, you have to see him. He's like this amazing looking guy. He really like is like a poster boy for like California ski slopes. He's got long blonde hair and this big smile. And, you know, you know, and, and they interviewed him after he just won the gold medal with this unbelievable move, right? You can't even really describe it. You know, they're twisting and flipping and turning. And, he, and they said to him, they said, We've never seen that move before. Like, uh, when did you come up with that? And he said, oh, I, uh, I kind of just did it on the spur of the moment. <laughs> and I don't even know what I did because I blacked out. <laughs> and it's like, wait a second. This is the key moment in your attempt to get a gold medal in the Olympics. This is the key moment. And his name, by the way, he's got a great name, Sage, right? So the key moment, and it's like, he just was so in the moment, and he just went for it, and something magnificent came out, you know? And it's, it's, it's kinda, it's interesting because On the, on, the, on the one hand, it's almost like uh, it's almost like mashiachtik. You know what I mean? Like to be so in the moment and for it to be so beautiful. Like you're just so like unchained by a- any 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 um, anything that would pull you down or, or hold you back or, or confuse you or anything like that. I, on the other hand, though, it's like if you were trying to. Um, like teach someone how to do that. Like I think that first you would have to go through all of the steps of absolutely never doing that. No, no, don't ever do that. Like, like first you've got to learn all the rules before you can break all the rules, right? And and that's what they always teach artists. You learn all the rules before you can break the rules. And in fact, all of the great modern artists, from Picasso to you know you you name it, the whole down the list. They all were classically trained, and they all absolutely knew how to do representational art before they did um, abstract art, you know? So, so it comes back to this idea of the golden calf, which is, and, and the golden angels in the Holy of Holies, which is that in, in one instance, God asked us to do these things. In the other instance, we decided that we we're going to do these things. We decided that we were going to choose how we were going to serve God. And so, so it's, 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 it's very, very tricky because it's sort of like um, Torah asks us to be in the moment, but to understand that, that, that God has structured the moment. So there's, there's this balance that has to take place for us to sort of be spontaneous, if you will, but to be spontaneous within this existing structure called the Torah, which God is act, asking us to work within. 
And that's a very, very tricky balance. You know, put another way, sometimes we refer to that as having your head in the clouds while your feet are on the ground. Right? To be able to be very inspired and in a way above it while still being within it simultaneously. And, and this, is, this, is a, this, is a great, this is a great balance. Um, and and it's, really, it's really easy to get wrong. I'll tell you, when I, I gave my, my son a, a blessing when he got bar mitzvah, and I, I, I said to him, I said, you know, there are a lot of people in the world who, who have their, their feet in the ground, but they don't have their head in the clouds. And a lot of people who have their head in the clouds, but they don't have their feet in the ground. But there are very few people who have their feet in the ground and their head in the clouds. And the world needs more of those people, you know? And I bless you, you should be one of those people. I bless all of us, including myself, that we should all be those people. Because, because when you look around, you clearly see that there is a structure to the world. It's, it's everywhere, you know? I mean, I talk about it all the time. Like, look at your DNA. You say, so what's an extra Y chromosome or an extra X chromosome? I mean... That's the difference between someone being functional or maybe not so functional. You know? You know, what's the difference if, if, if there's, you know, whatever percent there is of oxygen or, or a few percentage more of oxygen? So someone just explained to me that if there was a little more oxygen in the world, if you would light a match, it would basically set the world on fire. <laughs> you know? It would make like a conflagration, like, like huge fires and a little tiny bit less of oxygen in the world, and everyone would suffocate. Can you imagine how exact everything is? You know, one of, my, one of my favorite, and they say that about the sun also. They say if the sun was a little further from the earth, everyone would freeze to death. And if it was a little closer to the earth, everyone would, would just melt, basically. One of my favorite, favorite stories just about Amuna. I don't know the source, but it's a very old source, is an example. They say that some people who, you know, denied, denied God came to meet with this particular rabbi, and they saw a beautiful piece of calligraphy, a beautiful piece of writing that had this very beautiful poem on his table. And they read it, and they were so inspired, so beautiful, and it was so beautifully written. And they said, who wrote it? And he said, oh, I... Um, tipped over the ink, the ink spilled onto a page, and it made this poem. <laughs> now, if you think about that, that's, that's, I think that's really brilliant. I think that's super brilliant, actually, because it's got to form words. It's got to form the right sequence of letters within words. It's beautifully written, so it doesn't just make the words, but it's got to actually make them beautifully. Then the order of all of the words have to actually make sense and communicate a beautiful idea. Ha, ha, it's, it can't ever happen in a million years. So they said, they said that, that's impossible. And he says, well, look at the world. This world is more infinitely complex than this poem. And you say, this happened by accident? Right? So it's... One, one, one has to be honest. One has to be honest. But the problem is, is that if one is honest... Then they go, well, wait a second. If Hashem has such, 
you know, such a point of view, certainly he has a point of view for me too and for my life and for how I interact with other people. And then all of a sudden, I'm, I'm not, it's not just all about me. And then when it's not just all about me, then, you know, then all of a sudden I have to look at my life a little bit differently. And I have to like challenge some of the catchphrases that um, potato chip companies and beer companies are telling me all the time, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, these catchphrases, which, which are essentially our, our marching orders for life, right? As ridiculous as that sounds, but you know, in the absence of a, a formal code of right and wrong, pop culture steps into that vacuum. You know, this is one of the reasons why Star Wars is, is so revered, because, you know, the Darth Vader, he's in black, right? The good guys are in white. It's good versus evil. People get it. They, under, they resonate intuitively that there really is this sort of, like, struggle going on. Of course, it's all within the oneness of God. There aren't two separate powers, but nonetheless. So, so pop culture kind of takes us on. And so... So the Torah, according to most commentators, is not actually in order. There's some who will say it is in order. The Ramban is the famous exemplar of that point of view. But Rashi and others will say, no, you know, God sort of arranged the, the Torah in a particular way because he wants to communicate certain ideas. Okay, that's fine. Um, one of the things that's out of order here is that really the sin of the golden calf comes first chronologically. And this idea of the whole half shekel actually came later. But the Torah was written in such a way that the whole concept of giving a half shekel actually comes before the whole incident of the golden calf. And because we have this concept in Torah called which means the healing comes before the, the sickness. That first God puts the healing into the world. And so the healing for the sin of the golden calf is this idea of the half shekel. The half shekel, everyone had to give a half shekel. And that was part of the census, meaning to say, how do I, how do I know you're here? Well, you gave a half shekel. And Rabbi Seidenfeld said something very beautiful that, so how is your presence manifest? How is your presence actually recorded? To the, to the extent that you give, you're here. Because you would give a half shekel and that would show that you are a, a member of the tribe, so to speak. So, so, so when one gives, that's really when they make their presence most manifest. You know, whatever giving means. You know, whether that's, you know, not, I'm not just talking about sadaka right now. I'm talking about just contributing in some way or another. Um, but I wanted to say something else, actually, which is that there's a classic understanding that the half shekel is is a recognition of, of the, 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 the totality of, of what it means to be a person. Meaning to say, I'm a half shekel, but God, you're the other half. Or, I'm a half shekel, but you, the community, and you, my people, you, the other people in the world, you're the other half. And we're all working together. That I'm not just, it's not just all about me. And it, I'm not the final authority on everything. And so, 
this in terms of understanding the relationship of starting the Parsha with the half shekel and then going into the golden calf, you see the Rufu'a lifnehamaka, the healing before the, the sort of traumatic event. That if I understand that I'm only part of the picture and God, you're the other half, then I don't fall into this whole sort of kind of like entrenched, ego-based kind of consciousness that, no, I have to have the final word on everything because ultimately it's me. You, you never get to that place because you're starting from a different place, which is that I'm half a shekel. And God, you're the other half. So, so how can I be the final authority on, on, on everything? But you know something? In order to get to that place, because as far as I know, the half shekels didn't come in denominations of half shekels. A person has to break a shekel in half to get a half shekel. You know, so I think that we start, we come into the world with this consciousness that it really is all about me. And in fact, the first years of our life are very egocentric. You know, I'm not saying that in a critical way. That's just the reality. We're schooled to think, when I cry, people come. <laughs> but at a certain point, we have to sort of evolve past that and say, well, wait a second, there are other people in the world, and then the way to actually get another person's attention is not necessarily to have a tantrum, right? And to kick and scream, and you know what? Possibly I can actually get that for myself instead of asking someone else to hand it to me, right? But, but that actually involves breaking your shekel in half because it's not the normal place that you begin. God actually schools all of us in egocentrism. First, we're schooled in it. It's entrenched in us, right? And then we have to break it to understand, no, there's something bigger, there's something beyond. And that, for, for all of us, is a lifelong process. For all of us, it's a lifelong process. It's not just all of a sudden, it's sort of like, um, oh, grow up, and it's like, okay, okay, now I got it. Now I'm, you know, I'll be at the food bank if you need me, you know. Like, it doesn't, like, just you snap your fingers and then it happens. It, it, there has to be a recognition of reality, of what's really going on, that I'm not the final authority, right? And then that's a process. That's a process that we go through our whole lives. Okay.